0: or send an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Monday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday. Father John Trujillo is in the house if you'd like to be part of the program. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-EWTN. That's 3986 if you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 12052712985. And we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 12052712985. you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So, if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Monday, Father John Tragilio. How are you? I'm doing well. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Well. Well. You- in memoriam, yeah, sure. <laughs> Although I must admit, I'm already looking forward to Thanksgiving 2024. Oh. Um, yeah, it's, it's too quick, too quick of a weekend. Uh, I've got an email here from Anonymous. It says, Dear Father Tregilio, how are we to understand the temptation of Adam and Eve considering that snakes are unable to talk? How were they tempted if not by the serpent?
2: Wow, well, that, that's a good question. <laughs> um, first of all, uh, it, he's described. Lucifer Lucifer's described uh, Satan as a um, a serpent, not as a snake. And as the creation story goes in Genesis, um, the serpent was cursed, and it's implied that because one of the punishments is on your belly shall you crawl and dirt shall you eat that uh he evidently didn't have i mean he had legs or whatever uh before this uh, it, it's it's a metaphor in this sense that adam and eve were certainly were tempted by the devil and the devil took a form of a serpent and through all of uh human history you know the the legends of um you know dragons and that the serpent's always been representative of of a malevolent force of evil and uh you know we even had some pagan cults that um you know sort of had like snake worship or uh they used uh, serpents in their um sort of their pagan uh, cult um so what happened in the garden of eden certainly predates what happens here on on earth because remember adam and eve were were cast out of the garden of paradise the Garden of Eden, so there's no conclusive evidence to show that the serpent uh, could not have had uh, a voice. But uh, evidently, the de- I mean, it's 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 evident that the devil can appear in the form of many uh, guises, and it's still the devil. And so, if he appears as a serpent, it doesn't necessarily mean that this was serpents in general, because serpents obviously today don't speak, and not all serpents uh, you know, are, are uh, evil. So uh, the devil took a form uh, of the serpent, so that's why I don't think people need to get worried about uh, were they speaking before the fall, because uh, they're not rational animals like human beings, but uh, certainly Adam and Eve were tempted by the evil one himself.
1: Monica writes in, at Sunday mass our priests sanitize their hands with an aw- with that awful chemical gel <laughs> after consecrating and before distributing holy communion. Should this stuff be on the altar at all? I thought they could only use clean fresh water. Why would they do this? It's the only place I see anyone sanitizing their hands like it's, a, like it's now a new ritual or part of the Mass. <laughs> it's worrying for the future as I'm becoming wary of priests who profess to follow Jesus, but it seems they don't believe in his presence or power. If you can offer any words of help because this troubles me, that
2: would be great. Okay, well, I will try because I certainly uh, agree and concur with the fact that This should not be on the altar. It's not part of the ritual. It's not in the uh, general instruction of the Roman Missal. Um, That's not to say they might not try to sneak it in in the uh, fourth edition, but right now uh, there's no mention of any um, necessity or requirement uh, to use the hand sanitizer. That being said, the act of purifying one's hands, obviously there's the ritual uh, washing of one's fingers that the priest does uh, at the offertory, uh, that's a symbolic gesture representing that uh, he be washed, he be cleansed of his iniquity, so he can offer a a, a holy sacrifice. Um, but it's not, it doesn't have a practical aspect in it, in that it's just a few drops of water that uh, are used. Uh, it, it it's not something as medicinal. Now, when the pandemic occurred, obviously there was great concern over people's health, and it's the same as if. If, God forbid, somebody were to put poison in the wine uh, before Mass and the priest consecrates, it would be the real presence as long as it didn't you know change it more than 50%. But it would still be toxic. So even though it would be the real presence, Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity, it would still be poisonous. So we don't want people to think just because it is uh, the Blessed Sacrament that that sort of um, dispels... Because remember, the accidents remain. I can testify to that when I had a Mass at EWTN many, many years ago, and they had a big, huge chalice that Mother had us use for a priest conference, and we literally put a whole bottle of wine in that, and it got I consecrated it, and then I had to consume 99% of it. Uh, believe me, I felt the, uh, the accidental effects of, of that, although the substance of Jesus's body, blood, soul, divinity were there, the accidents, the appearances, the the qualities uh, of the wine remain, and likewise, um, you know, if there are germs on the altar, if the priest has in any way any type of con- uh, contamination, he can theoretically transmute that uh, through giving out communion uh, to the to the faithful, even though it's still the real presence. So I don't want people to think just because it is Jesus now that doesn't I don't want it to <laughs> diminish in any way, shape, or form the august mystery and miraculous reality that that is God himself, yet the accidents remain. That's the Council of Trent as as well as the Fourth Lateran Council, which predates Trent, tells us that. So the substance of, of Jesus' body and blood are there, but the accidents remain of the wine and of the bread. So if there's something contaminating there, now, I think this could be well Alleviated if the priest, you know, purifies his hands at the beginning of Mass, and or even before Mass, it would be even more appropriate. And then his hands should be pretty well clean. Uh, they didn't have to worry about doing it again, other than the ritual cleansing. But I've seen it done in par- or parishes and dioceses where the the bishop has insisted that the priest uh, wash his hands with some disinfectant. Problem is that it, there's a residual, and people will smell it and taste it. Um, it's not going to hurt them um, physically or spiritually, but i it's not part of the ritual, so I would say better to do it just before Mass begins.
1: And here's kind of a dovetail question to that. Brian says, I have some Protestant friends who think that Jesus
2: was drinking grape juice. Was it wine or juice? <laughs> well, I'll tell you one way to tell. If the wine steward says this is the best wine I've ever tasted, and that's thats in the Gospel, that's sacred, inspired, inspired, infallible, inerrant text. The wine steward said this is the best wine I've ever tasted. He would know the difference between grape juice and wine, believe me. You don't become a wine steward without knowing that difference. Uh, there's a quality to to real wine. Uh, it, it's more than just the alcohol content. Uh, there's a quality to it that, that grape juice does not meet. So the fact that you know, well, not to
1: mention that the the admonitions in sacred scripture to not be drunk with wine, right?
2: <laughs> yes, and you know um, it was Noah who who you know tied one on, so to speak. Uh, he had too much wine, uh, you know, bef- uh, after the the ark had uh, had landed there after the flood. Um, you know this this idea that I know some people who have problems with alcohol or uh, believe that you know it's sinful. Um, it's not simple because this was part of the Jewish um, religion, which, you know, Christianity comes from Judaism. You know, at the Passover meal, they were commanded to use wine. Uh, Jesus used wine at the Last Supper. He turned uh, water into wine, not into grape juice.
1: 833 288. EWTN is our toll free number. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Patty in St. Louis, and we've got plenty of time for your calls at 833 833- 288 3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday. Talking Catholic Apologetics on EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Trigilio.
0: Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: Have I got a deal for you? It is Cyber Monday, which makes it a perfect day to buy Catholic and shop at EWTNRC.com. And today, to incentivize you to do so, they're giving you absolutely free shipping on all standard continental United States phone and web orders. You pay nothing for shipping at all. Don't miss the savings today only at EWTNRC.com. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. 833-288-3986. First up today is Patty, a first-time caller in my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Patty, you are on with Father John Tregilio.
0: Hi there, thank you for taking my call. When
3: Jesus said to Peter, on my rock, you are my rock, and on my rock I will build my church, was there an Aramaic word for church, or are we just implying that church is understood, or what exactly did he say? Because typically the Jews of the time, wouldn't they worship in temple or synagogue?
2: Okay, that, that's a legitimate question. Uh, whether there's a word in Aramaic or not, the, the, the the four Gospels, the canonical Gospels, um, were written in Greek. Even if Matthew had written originally uh, in Aramaic, the, it's the Greek text that's considered the, uh, the inspired text. And in Matthew 16, where that is mentioned, I think it's 16, uh, 18, and the ecclesia is the Greek word uh, for church, and Jesus uses that not only there, But elsewhere, where he talks about uh, fraternal correction, you know, he says talk to someone privately if you have a problem with them. If they don't listen to you, bring another. Do this discreetly and charitably. And then if that doesn't work, then take them to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, then treat them as a tax collector. So... The, the word ecclesia in the Greek is used in the Gospel is used by Christ Himself, and then that word ecclesia in Greek is then used in the Latin when uh, St Jerome translated uh, the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, uh, ecclesia as we say in in the Latin, where we get the word like ecclesiology. So this is a word that you know has particular context, and it's more than just a building. Obviously, the word synagogue uh, refers to a building where the the Jews would uh, go for worship. Uh, It's distinct from the temple, which was limited to uh, Jerusalem, and that's where the sacrifices were being performed by the the priests. The synagogue is the local place where uh, the rabbi would read the sacred scrolls and then give uh, a a sermon or homily on that. Um, But the word church... From the Christian perspective, means both the building where the faithful gather and the sacrifice of the Mass takes place, and it refers to the the believers themselves because Saint Paul uses that concept too. That uh, you know, the Church is the body of Christ, uh, just like it is his bride. It's also his extended, his mystical body, as, as Pope Pius XII would refer to.
1: We head to the desert next. John is in Las Vegas, Nevada, watching us today on YouTube. John, you're on with Father John Tregilio.
0: Father John, I appreciate you taking the call. The movie Angels and Demons, I was told from a Catholic priest that I shouldn't watch it. I know it's not a true story, and I'm not going to be influenced one way or the other, but it does have great. Scenes of Vatican and the and the museums in Rome. Uh, would, I know it's not a true, so I, I won't take it for granted that it's true. But can I watch it?
2: Okay. Well, I mean, I'm glad you're making those distinctions between because too many times people will watch a movie that purports to be fictional, but then what happens is that it subconsciously puts. Uh, sows the seeds that... Or not you
1: know, so subconsciously. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: because obviously even like the Da Vinci Code itself, which was the first uh, in this series of movies by Dan Brown from his novels, uh, imply or explicitly purport that these things could have happened or are probable as opposed to the saying that it is de facto what happened. So those that's the one thing you have to be concerned about is, you know, is this going to plant some kind of um, doubt in my mind, but even if you had no trouble with that whatsoever, you could watch it as, you know, a Catholic critic would. The point is that there are scenes in the movie that are objectionable. They're offensive. Uh, they're immoral. I mean, they, you know, there are sex scenes in the movies, uh, in both these, uh, versions, uh, The Da Vinci Code and, um, uh, this one here. And, not only that but uh, there's some violence in there there's things that don't make the movie uh suitable enough to say but it has good scenery in it okay uh, there are a lot i mean if you want to see things uh, about the vatican uh, i would see look at the agony and the ecstasy with charlton heston and rex harrison it's about the painting of the sistine chapel um the movie the cardinal uh, that's an excellent movie that shows you Amazing scenes movie. inside and uh so there are good wholesome Movies that will give you um, a nice perspective, uh, a view of the Vatican, of the wonderful treasures uh, of the church without this, you know, sort of uh, sultry um, background or backdrop to it.
1: God bless you, John. Thanks so much for the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Got a couple of open phone lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833 288 Three nine eight six. Next up is Joe, a first-time listener in El Paso, Texas, listening on SiriusXM channel one thirty. Joe, you're on with Father John Trigelio.
3: Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, my question is uh, uh, on the New Jerusalem. The Book of Revelation describes the city, uh, city uh, the streets of gold, uh, the 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 foundation. Of the walls and the walls, the, the gates and the walls. It all sounds like it's a physical city, but I'm wondering if it's a metaphor. Is it actually a physical city or a spiritual city composed of the church? Uh, I was listening to other uh, 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 brothers They were talking about uh, that uh, it's got to be a uh, spiritual city uh, composed of the church. Uh, that all the believers are actually the New Jerusalem. So I'm kind of uh, wondering uh, what is our position on that.
2: Okay, well, the the Church has not made a definitive pronouncement on on that particular text. However, remember that uh, in the Book of Revelation, or sometimes called the uh, Apocalypse, it uses apocalyptic literature. It's a genre in which there's a lot of metaphor. There's a lot of um, allegory in there. And that's on purpose apocalyptic literature like the book of Daniel as well as the book of Revelation uh, was written in a time of persecution and so the imagery that's used there is one to uh, confound the enemies of the church, enemies of of the faith, but also uh, to convey a spiritual message. So that like with the um the beasts that are mentioned in the book of revelation the the angels with all the different eyes and wings uh it's not necessarily meant to be taken or interpreted literally but obviously the literal sense is important that we know what the words say so for instance you know the the this the new jerusalem we can conceptualize what gold is obviously uh but it doesn't need to be a physical uh structure because after the End of the world with the resurrection of the body. Uh, we're going to be of a different sort of existence, uh, just as Jesus's resurrected body was different. Uh, it's this, it's his real body, but remember, he could go through locked doors and walls. He could appear and disappear. He didn't need to eat food to to survive, and yet he did eat fish with his uh, disciples. So too that the new heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, doesn't have to be a physical building, because even though our bodies take up space now, uh, after the resurrection, after the world ends, uh, and our bodies are in heaven, God willing, like Jesus and, and the Blessed Mother, uh, it's going to not be in the same spatial, temporal existence that you and I exist now. So it doesn't have to be. I'm not discounting the possibility that God couldn't certainly do this. It would be, I mean, as God, he could. This would be an easy feat for him to perform, but it's not out of necessity. And uh, it's good to remember, like Pius Pius XII tells us, when interpreting sacred scripture, remember to uh, ascertain what's the context based on the genre, the literary form of of that, and yet still remain faithful uh, to what Holy Mother Church teaches us in the Magisterium.
1: We head next to Fairfax, Virginia. Terry is watching us on YouTube today. Terry, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program.
3: Yes, um, good afternoon, and thanks for taking my call. Father John, I have a question, Uh, and this is not – this doesn't happen in my diocese, but when I travel, um, in this case it's overseas, to a Spanish-speaking country, um, and I attend um, mass – there is a priest that uses um inclusive language in Spanish. You know, in Spanish we have discípulos, he uses discípulos y discípulas. Uh, he uses amigos y amigas during the Eucharistic prayer. Um and he doesn't he doesn't um recite the creed. He well he has his own version of the creed. Mm. Um so I understand that the Mass is still, the Mass is valid. Um, the consecration words, he does say correctly, Um pretty sure. But um, from a perspective of obtaining graces during Mass, what should be my disposition when, when I'm confronted, you know, with a liturgical abuse like that? Um, I mean, do I get more graces, less graces than... Here in the Diocese of Arlington, our Masses are celebrated reverently. So do I have more grace? This is, you know, I think I know the answer, but do, do I have more graces if I'm attending a reverently celebrated Mass?
2: Okay, that's an excellent question, and I can certainly agree with you that the Masses celebrated in the Diocese of Arlington are exceptionally reverent, orthodox, valid, and licit. Uh, we have many fine men from that diocese here at Mount St. Mary Seminary. Um, the Mass, being uh, particularly because it's the Holy Eucharist, one of the seven sacraments, uh, works ex opere operato, which is a Latin phrase meaning uh, it's not based on the spiritual condition of the celebrant or the recipients, as long as the proper words are spoken, the words of consecration, as long as the proper matter. Grape wine and uh, wheat bread are used it's valid now, in terms of the ex opere operantis the the uh, spiritual effect on the recipient that's contingent on your spiritual disposition so the the fruits of the mass uh your participation in that uh depends on you as opposed to what the priest is doing. Um, he, if he does this purposely, he's sinning because it's illicit and improper. But you will receive the full amount of grace by going to a valid mass, whether it's the priest is doing what he's not supposed to or not. It's but I would e- say find one that is better. <laughs> it's open line Monday with
1: Father John Tragilio.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Got a great opportunity for you. Some wide open phone lines for you on an Open Line Monday, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Roy is in Baltimore, Maryland today listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Roy, you're on with Father John Tregilio.
3: Thank you very much, Father John, and uh, before I forget, I'm an old St. Paul's Roman Catholic Church, 16th in Walnut. I know you are a Blessed Sacrament, so <laughs> it's always good to stay in touch, Father, always good. <laughs>
2: that nice Italian but, parish.
3: <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, Yes, it is. Father, the question I have is, uh, maybe I'm looking too deeply into this, in Matthew, Jesus says, Behold, I see... The heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Father, why wouldn't Jesus say, i the Son of God, standing at the right hand of God," instead of the Son of Man?
2: Okay, that's an excellent question. That's one we we hit it, uh, with the first uh, week of teaching Christology. the The phrase, the title, "Son of Man," is uh, is a prophecy made in the old testament jesus is truly the son of god but he's also the son of man because remember he's true god and true man uh, he has a, a a complete whole human nature and divine nature he's, he's one divine person but his sacred humanity is as present there as his uh sacred um is his divine nature so The title Son of Man is not meant or is not to be interpreted in any way inferior or that it denigrates or dilutes, diminishes his divinity. Uh, He identifies as the Son of Man because that's who's prophesied in the Old Testament. The Son of Man is going to come because Jesus as this beautiful incarnation of both divinity and humanity, uh, God and man, he is the one mediator as St. Paul says and bridges that gap between heaven and earth. So when he describes himself as the Son of Man, uh, we can't look at it from our 21st century um, comprehension and say, oh, he's only identifying his humanity. No, we have to look at it from the biblical interpretation, the biblical context, that that's one of the highest uh, titles for Jesus, is both Son of God and Son of Man. They're not in competition as Pope Benedict Would often say it's not either or, it's both and. So uh, it's not meant in any way to be inferior or to uh, diminish his uh, divine prerogatives, but it's to affirm this beautiful mystery of the incarnation.
1: God bless you, Roy. We appreciate the phone call today. One open line for you. Grab it at 833 288 EWTN. That's 833 288 3986. Jim is in the great state of Missouri, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jim, you're on with Father John.
3: Hey, Father John. Hi. Hey, so if a, a person dies in between uh, confessions and would not be in a state of grace, therefore, is it enough to just, as you, as you die with your last breath, to say, I'm sorry? Would that suffice?
2: Well, what the Church requires, or God requires, I should say, and the Church teaches us, uh, without confession, the only way that you can be rem- have mortal sin remitted is to make a perfect act of contrition. So it's not enough just to be sorry, but it's our motivation for sorrow, because an imperfect contrition is good enough to motivate you to go to confession. Imperfect contrition meaning, um, I'm sorry because of the, I fear the pains of hell, but perfect contrition is that, rather than the punishment, my sorrow is is engendered primarily, predominantly, because I'm offending God, who's a, who's uh, deserving of all my love. So that's a little that's cranking up uh, a bit higher than that. So it's not just that I'm sorry. So that's why we want Catholics to make every effort to go to confession as soon as they find that God forbid they're in mortal sin. Uh, if a person's uh, you know dying, that's why it's important to get the priest to administer the sacrament of anointing of the sick, because um, if they're unconscious, the sacrament do- is able to remit sin that's why only a priest can, can anoint um, so you don't want to just fall on the, on the, on the you know, presumption that oh, if I'm just sorry, it's more than that, it has to be complete, total sorrow and you know we have that wonderful uh, affirmation when you hear those words, I absolve you from your sins as opposed to just, you know, guessing or suspecting. So, uh, you know, that imperfect is good to motivate you to go to confession, but it's not enough to remit the mortal sin, uh, you know, and your salvation of your soul is in jeopardy here.
1: 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. If you give us a call right now, we'll probably be able to get to your phone call today at 833-288. Three, nine, eight, six. Uh, Victor writes in, when you're trying to decide between two good things, how do you recognize which is the right thing to do?
2: Is one <laughs> from the devil and one from God? Well, that first part, uh, he, meant, he the question is two good things, correct? That's correct. Okay, well, uh, if you have a choice between two good things and they're equal, then you can choose either one. Um, what we're supposed to do is do good and avoid evil. So, if something's evil, then I must, you know, not only avoid it, but I, I should not choose it. Uh, to choose evil is a sin. Uh, good, there's a, could be a hierarchy of goods. So, obviously, protecting, you know, protecting your own life, self-preservation, protecting the life of your family, especially if you're the the head of the family as as the father and the husband, you know, that's a higher good than. A lower good, meaning, well, it's Sunday, it's a day of rest, you know, we deserve to recreate, so let's, you know, go for a little ride uh, in, in the countryside. That's a good, but it's not higher, it's not even equal to the the supreme good of, of uh, pervert, per, preserving your life or practicing your faith by getting to church and going to mass on, on Sunday too. So, if the goods are equal you're free to choose whichever one you want if there um there's a hierarchy you should choose the higher good over the lesser good because that not only makes sense but uh that you're participating in more good by choosing a higher good and if i distort the goods in fact that's how most people when they do something wrong they're they're uh, fooling themselves into thinking this lower good is the equivalent or higher than than something that's ontologically better. So, for instance, if somebody says, you know, I want to be comfortable, there's nothing wrong with that, but I can't rob a bank. The ends doesn't justify the means, and I can't take a a lower good and distort it to make it equivalent to a higher good, meaning respecting people's, uh, their personal property or, you know, honoring the the natural moral law.
1: 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. 833-288-3986. Uh, Jenny writes in, how would you answer a teenager who says, if I don't believe in all this Catholic stuff, why do I still have to go to church?
2: <laughs> well, you could say this. If you're under my roof, I'm paying for the food, and uh, you know, I'm not charging you rent. Um, you know, I'm... Protecting you, uh, you know, subsidizing you in a sense, and you're under my jurisdiction, then th- that's the rules of the game. I mean, that's one blunt way of saying it. But also, as a good loving parent, you know, you want your children to do what's best for them. And what if your son or daughter says, "I don't want to brush my teeth"? You're not going to say, "Okay, fine. You don't you don't want to brush your teeth? Don't brush your teeth." Hey, if you're still living in my house and you're a minor, I don't have to pay all these dental bills. And secondly, what kind of um, responsible parent would I be If I ignored the fact that you weren't Taking care of your dental health Or your physical health You weren't eating properly If you are eating only junk food Instead of food that was uh, nutritious and good for you uh, Or saying to the kid Yeah, stay up. stay up all night It doesn't matter You don't need to get enough rest Of course not So spiritual is as important If not more important Than the uh, the physical And I know of no good parent that would say well, you decide for yourself. No, that's the part of the parent, uh being a good mom or dad, is saying, Okay, you may not agree with this, but I'm here for your for your good. And when you're out on your own, when you're old enough to be on your own, you know, you sadly can do what you want, but you're here under my roof and I'm still have my authority over you, it's not because I'm the boss and you're not. It's that I love you. And I want you to do what's what's right, even if you under if you don't understand it.
1: Eight three three two eight eight EWTN wide open phone lines for you at eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Carl says that he's a Protestant and he wants to know how do you know which denomination is the true church?
2: Well, the easy way is to look at uh, the lineage. And you know, Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, you are Peter upon this rock, I will build my church. And again, we just had a previous question about that. Jesus uses the word church. He's gonna, it's his church, he built it, and he built it on the rock of Peter. Peter is the first bishop of Rome, he's the first Pope, and Pope Francis is the direct lineage, he's the successor of Saint Peter. So that's one of the first ways you could say is, you know, there's that apostolic succession. Of the apostles and and then the bishops, but also the popes, being successors of Saint Peter, and there's that wonderful uh, thing that we say in the creed: one holy, catholic, and apostolic. Those four marks of the church are found in the Catholic Church. There's that unity. There's catholicity. Okay. There's apostolicity. Uh, there's that continu- continuity that goes back to Christ himself, and he hands the keys to Peter. Now obviously, they weren't physical keys, but they were what they represent authority and he gave that authority to Peter and who's his representative, his vicar uh here on earth and that's found in the Catholic Church, and you know the other churches broke off in subsequent years and centuries um the The Catholic Church was was founded by Christ it was founded on the rock of peter uh, the Orthodox split. In the 11th century, uh, the Protestants split uh, in the 16th century and then subsequent centuries after that. So, if you look at the history, if you look at the, the biblical text, you'll see, and also the fact that all seven sacraments, not just two, but all seven, are in the Catholic Church, the fullness of divine revelation, sacred scripture, and sacred tradition. So, you got the fullness of grace, you got the fullness of truth, and you have all those wonderful other um aspects of of the ecclesial life
1: siri knows (laughs) that's right (laughs) if you ask her who founded any church she'll give you the name of a person if you ask her who uh founded the catholic church she'll tell you jesus christ um 833-288-ewtn is our toll-free number be sure to check out cresta in the afternoon as soon as we're finished here that's this afternoon at 4 p.m eastern time uh, having conversations of consequence and um, building the church to build the nation, or is it build the nation and build the church? <laughs> Al will have to call in and correct me. Uh, Teach a man the fish. Yeah, but that's Cresta <laughs> in the afternoon, this afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern time, right here on EWTN Radio. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. <laughs> Kevin asks, how does the authority of the papacy work?
2: (laughs) That's a good question. (laughs) Um, The Pope's authority as the supreme head of the church uh, is distinct from his teaching authority, because in faith and morals, when he speaks uh, as supreme head of the church on those things which are binding and conscious on the Catholic faithful, he can invoke uh, papal infallibility. But in terms of jurisdiction, when he moves a bishop, when he appoints a bishop, that that is not connected to papal infallibility. That's prudential judgment. So who the Holy Father picks or who he removes, who he adds, um, when he changes the dicasteries or congregations, uh, all the sort of, like, the practical uh, exercise of, of papal authority uh, when they suppress a diocese, when they create one, when a parish is closed or when it's... Uh, erected all those things are part of the Pope's authority which is full supreme immediate and universal but infallibility, the freedom from error is only uh, when he's teaching as supreme um, head of the church and he makes it manifest that this is binding in conscience on all the faithful and just on faith and morals. So we want to make those two distinctions between his his jurisdiction, his power as the boss so to speak, uh, the, the one in charge, and then his distinction from being the teacher of teachers. 833
1: 288 EWTN. That's our toll free number. Still have time for your calls at 833 288 3986. Clint writes in What is happening during a Catholic Mass? Why does God have to die on the altar every
2: time? Well, he's not dying every time. It's, it's the same death of Jesus on Calvary, on Good Friday. Uh, it's not uh, God, it's not Jesus dying again and again and again. Uh, it's the one sacrifice. Uh, that's why we use everything in the present tense. The priest at the Mass says, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and says, this is my body. So it's putting uh, what is in the past into the present. Uh, it's not that he said, this was my body. It, this is, uh, in the same way, to make it clear that you know we're talking about the here and now, although what for us is in the past, 2,000 years ago, what Jesus did, is now made present to us here. So in one sense, we are there uh, at the Last Supper in the upper room. We are there at the uh, foot of Calvary on Good Friday when he's being crucified. And we're there at the empty tomb when he rises uh, from the dead. So the past is made present, the present is uh, connected to the past, but then as St. Thomas Aquinas says, we're also connected to the future, because the purpose of Holy Communion is to nourish us for the journey, the pilgrimage from this world to the next. So Jesus isn't dying again and again and again, um, in the anywhere any more than uh, when the Jewish people celebrate the Passover, uh, when they're doing the Seder meal, uh, it's not that the Passover is happening again and again and again, it's the same Passover, but in the, in the Christian sense, the Mass is even more than that, because at the Passover, you know, the Lamb was slain, and it still was a Lamb. Uh, at, the, at Jesus, uh, at Mass, we have bread and wine becoming Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity.
1: 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Next up is Thomas in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Has the statute of limitations for you run out in Allentown? Father? No. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh, Thomas I'm going, says, I'm Thomas going says there. no. <laughs> I'm going there for
2: uh, the Feast of St. Joseph the oh. next year.
1: Well, there you go. Thomas is listening on SiriusXM Channel 130. I wasn't trying to out you there, Thomas. Okay. You're on with Father John.
3: All right. Over the weekend, I saw on television a Muslim who was explaining to a group of people that Islam is the one and only true religion from Abraham. He said, first uh, was the Jewish religion. And then Jesus came along and overrode the Jewish religion, and Christianity became the one true religion. Then Mohammed came along and overrode Jesus, and therefore, Islam is the one true religion from uh, Abraham background. So my question is, how do you respond to someone who, who presents that?
2: Yeah, uh, I know that's what they believe, I know that's what they teach. Chronologically, there's, I mean, there's some veracity in the sense that, you know, Judaism predates all the other religions and then Christianity came from uh, Judaism uh Islam all right uh, although it, it, it claims to be uh Abrahamic uh that it goes back to uh, Abraham um, from his uh, first son Ishmael um, in terms of religion in the true sense, Jesus is the Son of God, there's no one higher than him, so uh Muhammad is no there's no way that he could replace or supplant. Or supersede jesus any more than um when you know um, the founder of the mormons um uh, joseph smith said an angel appeared to him and the book of mormon is not parallel it's not superior uh to the bible and uh muhammad is not superior to jesus he's jesus is not just another prophet as was um moses so when you look at the full context of it we say jesus is the fullness of revelation he is the he as the son reveals the father um mohammed in you know comes about in the uh, 7th century and says he has this um encounter with allah and the the angel then inscribes uh, the words of the quran um first of all you know that is not the same as sacred scripture in which god uh particularly the holy spirit inspires human beings to write what he wants them to write exactly as he wants it written uh this is not um you know some kind of uh a handing on of a, of a of a text as uh you know someone says here i did it for you but the sacred author is part of the revelation as well as uh god himself who's who's inspiring them so, you're not going to be able to really argue within just a few sentences or a paragraph, but have them look at the text itself of sacred scripture, which predates the Quran, obviously, and see, yes, you could make a, a connection with Ishmael, but the covenant was made through Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob because that's in the sacred scripture the god of Abraham the god of Isaac god of Jacob and Jesus is in that direct lineage in his in his humanity uh Muhammad doesn't have that connection uh and if anything even if he was a prophet he's not he's not the fullness of revelation which is Jesus
1: 833288 ewtm that's our toll free number 833-288-3986. James is in the Midwest listening to Covenant Radio, and he called and says, how do we reconcile Paul saying it's best to say single against God saying it's not good for man to be alone?
2: Well, I mean, you're you're comparing apples and oranges in this sense. The reason why God, you know, in, in Genesis, uh, he creates Adam first, and this is in the second story of creation, in the first story of creation, in chapter one, um, human beings are created at the last day, uh, male and female, he created them. In the second story of creation, which is in chapter two, God makes Adam, and then he makes the animals, and the animals, you know, the pooch and kitty and everything else uh, uh, are fine, but they're not a true, um, you know, companion. So then he puts Adam to sleep, takes his rib, and then forms Eve, Um the f- The fact that we have comp- complementariness between male and female uh, is shown then when we have the beautiful institution of marriage, the sacrament of, of matrimony. Uh, the two complement each other. The idea of celibacy, of you know, especially in the ministry, uh, it's not poo-pooing the idea that marriage is of a high, holy estate, but that from the practical standpoint, as well as a spiritual one, uh, especially in the Latin Rite, because, you know, the Eastern Catholic Church, you know, they have married clergy. In the Latin Rite, we we don't, um, unless someone comes in um, through another channel. The point is that I, as a Catholic priest of the Latin Rite, um, my spouse is the church, and it gives me the freedom to fully take care of my spouse, uh, my spiritual children, uh, because I'm devoted completely uh, morning, noon, and night. I don't have a wife and children that I would have to first give them my priority and then uh, my parishioners. But married clergy, you know, it's still it's not antithetical uh, to the Catholic um, ministry because obviously we have it in the in the Eastern Church, and we've had some married um, uh, ministers who've come into the faith and then uh, were ordained as Catholic priests. I have many friends of mine who uh, came in that way through that provision. So it's not again competition. It's not either or. It's both and. And Saint Paul doesn't, you know, uh, denigrate marriage, but the same token, you know, he he doesn't sh- uh, show disdain for the fact that you know even our Lord Jesus Himself w- was celibate. He never married.
1: Uh, Neil wants to know what was the role of Mary in the early church when she was still alive.
2: Well, from what we can ascertain. Uh, certainly because that's Jesus' mother. She was present at the um, Pentecost in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came uh, 50 days after Easter. It was obvious that she was an integral part of the Christian community. She did not have any role of leadership because Jesus didn't give her the keys. He gave the keys to to St. Peter. He said, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. Nevertheless, as the mother and particularly, you know, this image of the Queen Mother. Jesus is the King of Kings. We just celebrated Christ the King this past Sunday. Mary is the Queen Mother, as the Mother of God, the Mother of the Savior. Her role is not incidental. Uh, She is an intercessor. She's not the mediator. But her role was significant, because the Church instantly, you know, recognized her role, and Feast of Our Lady are, are some of the most ancient um, celebrations in addition to the birth of Jesus, his death and resurrection. We also have the birth of his mother and uh, her assumption.
1: Father, would you leave us with a blessing?
2: Benedica Vos Omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen.
1: Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, our producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for helping us kick off another week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it tomorrow, talking faith, family, and fellowship with Father of Mercy, Father Wade Menezes. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless.